0: Board. It is week five of the area's high school football season. I am Sean Curtis at Sean Curtis four three zero Twitter or X, Instagram Blue Sky or Threads. Mike Mastovich is across the table from me at Masty eighty one on Twitter and what is it, Mike Masty? On yes, in, on, on Instagram? Instagram. We we gave you the wrong handle. So if you went looking for Mike on Instagram and you were looking for Masty eighty one, sorry.
1: There are not many posts there, but <laughs> he he's working on it. Yes.
0: By the way, this is the TD club and we're gonna get into a pretty busy week four and then also a pretty spicy week five. So I, I think first off we have to break up Somerset. This is a team that you know for the past couple of weeks on this podcast we said, okay well Greater Johnstowns probably gonna be their best chance for a win you know and that that might be the highlight of their season. Somerset made made me I, I'll just take it all in. Somerset made me eat my words. On Saturday, they beat a they beat Westmont at Price Field.
1: On Saturday, they're two and two now. Yeah, two straight wins for the first time in a, in like three years. Uh, they beat Westmont thirty-one to thirteen, so it wasn't like they just squeaked by. Uh, the guy who's been making a lot of things happen for the Golden Eagles is their junior quarterback Lane Lambert. In the game against Westmont, he had 90 rushing yards, scored a couple TDs on the ground, passed for 81 yards, had a touchdown pass. And on defense, Lambert made two fumble recoveries. One of those, he returned 67 yards for a score. So he's a guy that um, has really picked it up for them. I know in, I believe it was week two, they were at Central, and he was out with an injury. And uh, they rested him up that game. And since then, he's come back with a vengeance. And... It's no small feat to go to Westmont Hilltop
0: and be Westmont Hilltop. Even if it's a down year for the Hilltoppers, like just that offense, ball control, you have to be disciplined because you're not going to see a team running a double wing for the rest of the season in Laurel Highlands.
1: Right. If the Hilltoppers get that running game going, they can chew up uh, most of a quarter on one drive. So uh, they they had uh, started with uh, the week one – Loss in overtime to Bedford, come back with a nice win at Bellwood, and then uh, now dropped a couple. So suddenly the Hilltoppers are sitting at one and three. So uh, they are got to look f- for a rebound here really quick.
0: Another game featuring a team that runs a wing-based offense, and that's Winbur. A big win over Myersdale. Mike, this is where you were at this past Friday. What did you learn?
1: Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, the Ramblers won 38-7 over Myersdale. Um, but the, the big part of the game happened early in the third quarter. The Wimber defense stopped Meyersdale. Meersdale punted, and uh, Luke Hostetler, who is the area's leading rusher, fielded the punt. Uh, it was like a fair catch type thing, and he couldn't get a handle on it. When the ball was loose, um, there, there was a scrum for the ball, and Hostetler stayed on the field uh, injury. place got totally silent. Uh, lasted quite a while, uh, relatively speaking in terms of the delay uh, both teams took a knee it got as I said totally uh silent there and just a lot of concern family on the field and uh friends on the field took out a cart like a golf cart type thing and uh, put him on a board and took uh, Luke off the field and an ambulance came so uh, that kind of dampened the whole moment the whole night Uh, but Wimber uh, forged ahead they ended up uh, playing great defense again and uh Few other players like quarterback Tanner Barkley, uh, receiver Evan Brady, and uh, running back Bryce Chikarell—they uh, really stepped up. Uh, Brady, when I interviewed him and uh, posted a video on Twitter, uh, uh, Barkley, I should say, uh, the quarterback, first year starting quarterback, he had some really uh, uh, great comments about how the team, uh, you know, loved uh, Luke Hostetler and they they played for him after he was out of the game. So. Uh, It'll be interesting. I've been trying to reach uh, Coach Matt Grohal just to see what the status is for uh, Luke uh, Hostetler this week, and I I have not, uh, you know, as the time of this recording, had not been able to get him on that.
0: And and there was a a very poignant comment from Coach Grohal after the game, and it was about everybody doing what they can to ensure player safety. Obviously, these are things that are inherent when you play the game, and you have injuries all the time, be it – what you witnessed this past Friday, or just minor bumps and bruises. And, you know, in the year 2023, we know so much, but yet these things happen
1: because, again, that's just the inherent part of football. Yeah, Coach Groho, you mentioned uh – there was a a horrible injury, uh, two different ones. One was involving a Carn City player. The other was a Jersey Shore player. We found out tragically a few hours after that, maybe a day later, that the Jersey Shore player had passed away. Uh, Sympathies to his family. And the Carn City, boy, the family's been posting a lot of updates. And, boy, you read those things. It really tears your heart apart because they have been totally blunt and talked about day-to-day. It's like – one moment they think, oh, my gosh, he's not going to make it. Then he makes a little bit of a recovery. It's such a long road for him. But you really feel for that family and that school and all those players on the Carn City team, and especially the Jersey Shore to have such a tragic ending uh, like that. So Coach Grohal talked about how you've got to take care of things in this game, do everything possible to keep players safe because these types of injuries are mounting. And You see it at the pro game, too, with the, the, the Nick Chubb injury. was just kind of horrific to watch that.
0: And the Jersey Shore player that we were speaking of is Max Engel, and the Carn City player that we were speaking of is Mason Martin. And again, like, you know, these are young men who when they take the field, when they buckle up the chinstrap, you you don't think this is going to happen. It may be in the back of your mind. But again, like I I don't think there is any one coach, any one player in this state that looks at these, you know, looks at these games as a time to be unsafe, a time to be reckless as it is. I think sometimes you might get – you might step into that tackle a little too hard. But, again, like, again, I – I that quote from Coach Grohall really jumped out at me when I read the story on Friday night. And, again, it's just – that is the burden for everybody involved in the game, be it the coaches, be it the players, be it the officials, be it school officials. I mean, gosh, even the fans. Yeah. It's just – you know, get in, get out, play
1: the game, and everybody gets out safe. Yeah, and uh, what Coach Groholl had said after the game, he said this was um, an injury uh, that started at the in the PIWA playoffs when Wimber traveled out east and played Stilton High Spire. Uh, at the end, later in that game. Uh, Luke was injured in that game. I, I believe it was a back injury. and Adam Ripple had told me that he was at that game and said that I, I believe an ambulance took him out from that one. So uh, Coach Grohall said that this was kind of, uh, you know, not the same injury, but the same type of area, and they were wondering if it was like a coach's words were a tweak of it., uh, he was hoping for the best that it's nothing serious, but uh, that remains to be seen.
0: Chestnut Ridge taking out Forest Hills, and what was an absolute thriller on Friday. This is a game that our writer, Jake Oswalt was at and probably one of the better games in the area this past Friday.
1: It almost—it uh, was similar to the game at Chestnut Ridge two years ago. It was the same type of thing where uh, 42 to 35 two years ago, and here it's 38-31 this year, uh, Chestnut Ridge down 12 at the half, Scores on four consecutive possessions. So, uh, great comeback by the home team there. Nate Weissong passed for 257 yards and four touchdowns. Chase Weissong had seven catches for 161 yards and three of those scores. So, um, the playmakers there uh, stepped up Forest Hills uh, as we talked throughout this season. They're two and two now. Ridge is four and zero, oh, But uh, Forest Hills is uh, a team to be reckoned with. And uh, we'll be talking about them later, a big game they have this weekend. They, uh, you know, they're, they're right there uh, and close to winning this game. It's a slight difference from being 3-1 and one and 2-2. Two and two.
0: Richland stays unbeaten, defeating McCourt Carroll at Sargent Stadium at the point. And a, a pretty, I, I don't want to say a nonscript win for Richland, but, you know, very businesslike win for the Rams. I, unfortunately, he came out of
1: cost. Once again, uh, you know, Richland 35-16, to but Evan McCracken left the game with an injury uh, Coach. Bailey, I was able to reach this week, and uh, he didn't get too in-depth, but he said that uh, they are hoping to have him back this week. But, I mean, you know, what else is a coach going to say? So um, he didn't divulge any secrets, didn't give me any off-the-record type stuff. So, uh, you know, we all know Evan from multiple sports and, uh, you know, covered him in track the last couple of Mays. He's been phenomenal down there. Everybody knows him well, a uh, great guy to talk to after games, uh, win or loss. Um, so everybody's hoping that uh, – he and Luke both, uh, you know, have a positive week here. And beyond football, just hope that they're both okay. Leander Valley
0: defeated Apollo Ridge. That's win number 150 for Roger Beidle. And there, there was a quote from Coach Beidle in Saturday's edition of the Tribune Democrat where he said, you know, after year one, I never expected we'd get this far. They only had one win. I mean, that was the then Mounties. I And... What Coach Beidle has done with that program, with everything that has gone on, this is not just humming along and building a program. In, I think it was year seven, would have been year six or year seven, you're taking on players from a different school. Now you've merged a program with Laurel Valley. And there was a lot of emotion surrounding that. And it probably took about three or four seasons for the community to latch on. Wins back to back district titles in 2016, 2017. In 2020, Ligonier Valley leaves District 6 and heads on to District 7. This is three coaches worth of just anything that a program could have to deal with. And this has all been taken on by Coach Vidal and his staff and the athletes that have come through either the Mounties or the Rams. During those years, this is Biddle's 20th season at the helm of the program. I mean, this, I think anybody who gets to 20 years at the same program, it, it, it's worthy of recognition and mention. And I think, you know, now you're wondering, you know, how much longer does Coach Bidal take it? Because he's not that far away from the school district's record, which would be Jerry Page's, and I believe it's 206 wins. I don't know if that's on his mind, you
1: know, but, it, you know, it, I it, I don't think it would be that far away for him. You never know. I mean, in this day and age, to have, as you said, to have somebody at the same school for 20 seasons is uh, not as common as it used to be. When we were, uh, you know, first starting at the Trib here, you know, you had guys that had been around forever, stayed at the same school, but as things change um, and, and just society changes and, it's such a um, critical uh, world out there now, and when you have social media, the pressures that come with that—you uh, you feel for kids that uh, have pressure on social media with well, coaches in the same way. Um, I mean, we we had the guys that have been here forever, like Don Bailey, who we'll talk about later, forty-five seasons. Gary Gauss, uh, a boatload of seasons at Portage, stepped down a couple of years ago. You you mentioned Jerry Page, uh, John Jacoby, those guys. You know, it's it's not as common now, and you know, you have guys like Kevin Marabito at United Valley have, have been there. Max Shoemaker at Chestnut Ridge are two of the veterans. And um, it's hard to stay at one place. So what Coach Biddle has done is, is kind of amazing. And I, I think back, we talked briefly, uh, I think it was week two or three of the podcast, just about how... It, when they couldn't get over that hump every year, they were they couldn't beat Penn's Manor, the the Danny Farrens years, and I think there was another guy that was a pretty good quarterback in there too. And I saw that last second loss where Leon all but had the game won, and Penn's Manor had like one second left on the clock and went thirty, forty, fifty yards, whatever it was that scored. They couldn't get over that hump. well now they they've been over that hump. They dominated for several years. It seemed to be on the downside when they had the low numbers and they still came out okay in the first year to a Whip-Ule and they win a Whifield playoff game last year. So yeah, kudos. Uh, Coach Beidle and the job his staff and he have done. And they took two heavy
0: losses earlier this season uh, to South and to Greensburg-Salem, and they come back, and they beat
1: Apollo Ridge, and they beat Apollo Ridge handily. 34-14, and uh, John Jablonski, four touchdowns in that game. Uh, he's been consistent you know, this season, just uh, lighting it up yardage-wise and touchdowns.
0: Okay, we've teased it multiple
1: times. There's something big going on at Sidman on Friday. Oh, indeed, yes. Uh, Coach uh, Don Bailey uh, will be honored, um, as I said, 400, or 45 years, 375 wins, 10 district titles, either District 6 or District 5-6, uh, five trips to the Western Final or State Semifinal, state runner-up finish, a double overtime loss in 1994. Coach Don Bailey has you know, the record, uh, you know, in fact, I wrote my column about it this week, and so that any time uh, a list of the region's most successful football coaches is, is talked about, Don Bailey's name's got to be either at the top or in the top five there. Uh, he will be honored Friday night, and appropriately, the, the Forest Hills Rangers will be at home playing Richland, who is coached by uh, Don's son, Brandon Bailey, who was a phenomenal quarterback at Forest Hills. So what Forest Hills is doing to honor Coach Don Bailey is they are renaming the fieldhouse, uh, the Donald Bailey Fieldhouse, at Forest Hills. It's a beautiful facility there. And one of the reasons why it's the field house that's being renamed is because Don Bailey, uh, he had 40 years, as a, uh, educator in Forest Hills too. He started out as a teacher. This is all in my column. Uh, he was a teacher. He was assistant principal. He was principal, uh, director of education. And in his last decade, he was superintendent. And during that decade is when all the planning went into this, uh, as you go to Four Seals now, they get a beautiful new building, a beautiful field house, uh, incredibly uh, upgraded uh, football field that happened. Uh, the upgrades on that happened a couple years after uh, he retired. But still, uh, his uh, f- footprints or fingerprints or whatever are all over all this. And he talked about whenever they did the field house, one of the things he was most proud of is they did not raise taxes. They did not need to take a loan. In his words in my column, he said, we paid cash. So, um, He's being honored as a football coach, everything he did. He's a Cambria County Sports Hall of Famer. He's a Pennsylvania Football uh, Hall of Famer among the coaches. And uh, he's a phenomenal educator, so that's uh, why this field house is being renamed. And they're going to have a little ceremony at the field. And I'm sure it's going to be an emotional night for Brandon Bailey, uh, Diane Bailey, who's uh, Don's wife, and Derek Bailey, who's his other son. Um, Brandon said, hey, I'm going to be all about this ceremony. But then once the ceremony ends, Richard's going to try to beat four steals.
0: And it's when you said about Don saying he was most proud about the field house that they were able to pay in cash, my mind immediately goes to Randy Moss about 20 years ago when he was still with the Vikings when asked how he paid a fine. And he just said, straight cash.
1: Yeah, (laughs) straight cash. So the other thing Don is very proud of, and he said this in multiple interviews I've done with him whenever... um, Whenever he retired, I believe when Sam Ross Jr. wrote a column uh, for us about the Cameron County Sports Hall of Fame, he always talks about one of the things he's most proud of is not so much even the games that his players had, but what they've become after they left Forest Hills. And he talked about having doctors, attorneys, uh, military personnel, people with the West Point, people with the Air Force Academy, Naval Academy. And he said uh, they've become good people, good fathers, good husbands. Good citizens, and that's uh, something that he talks about a lot. So you know he truly means that.
0: And you know, not to get on a soapbox, but there, there are still some people out there. I, I I would like to think that a lot of the coaches are in it for the right reasons, and the right reasons are that sports can be a teaching aid. You're not going to learn every lesson in life through sports, but you're going to learn a lot through sports, and it takes a coach. And sometimes that coach is an educator. Sometimes that coach is in another line of work. But it takes a coach to be able to break down those lessons, break down those moments and say, like, this is what you should be picking up. This is why we're doing these things. You know, because I, I'm sure any young athlete who is listening to this podcast is dreading those early morning practices during the off season, or dreading two-a-days or dreading open gyms, you know, whatever your sport is. But, you know, those are like, you may not be using those wind sprints later in life, but just the discipline to get through.
1: Right. And to keep at things. And that's one of the things I remember about that 94 state runner-up team and those teams in the 90s. Forest Hills won four straight district titles, made it to the Western Finals a couple times. Uh, in the 90s, they won 101 games and had an 820 winning percentage.
0: So, Which is astounding.
1: Yeah. So, like, I remember so much from those years uh, how he and his coaches and the players made them believe so much. Brandon Bailey talked about how they were such tight teammates all those years. But anything that, uh, you know, anybody thought, hey, maybe we got it, Uh, you know, when you're in the state playoffs. I remember the game against New Brighton. Nobody gave Forest Hills a chance. They played at Mansion Park. New Brighton had just won the Whippeal. They were ranked very high in the state. uh, And Forest Hills beat them up there at – El Tuna, uh, the next week when they were playing Mount Carmel, they were 21-point underdogs according to, like, the, the media in Harrisburg in their predictions. And they end up taking the game to double overtime before losing. And uh, the guy from Mount Carmel just made an incredible play, uh, scrambled on a, a third or fourth in forever and just broke tackles and maneuvered and scored the touchdown to win it in the second overtime. So, uh, you know, they he was, he was a master of uh, – you know, getting the most out of his guys and make them believe and, uh, you know, have that chip on their shoulder that we always talk about. uh.
0: I can remember covering a District 6 championship game against Bishop McCourt in 2005, and I am pretty sure that the bulk, if not all, of the predictions for that game and the Tribune Democrat had picked Bishop McCourt. This might be, you know, when Mike goes on the microfilm and does his you know, football flashback. You might want to just grab, you know, the week of whatever the district championship would have been in 2005 to verify that. But I'm pretty sure the bulk of us, if not all of us had picked Bishop McCourt Mm -hmm. forest Hills won. forest Hills. It wasn't a dominant performance, but forest Hills won that football game. And it was very clear that forest Hills was the better team on that particular night. And I can't repeat what Will Will Lazaration said. Hmm. Um, It it did not make print, but um, a word for donkey was involved. And as in everybody thought they were going to kick our donkey. And, but, you know, we came out, we played the better, you know, we played the game, you know, coach, coach, coach. I think he said coach coached us up. Right. And sometimes you have that you know Don was one of those guys he like I don't want to say big game coach but he was able to get players on board in tune for the big games all right we are 20 minutes in let's go to chestnut ridge at bedford big rivalry here the lions are 4 and 0 bedford is really 1 and 3 some very competitive losses though so yeah, th- yeah. they're <laughs> very close to being 3 and 1
1: exactly and and this is one of those uh great rivalry games. is a border rivalry. Um, And one of those things, boy, you hate to use the cliche, oh, the records don't matter, or throw it out the window. But I mean, I can imagine for a couple reasons. Because of the great rivalry, and then plus, as you said, Bedford is kind of reeling here at one and three. Um, You know, this is the week you've got to step up, and and you're playing your your big rival who is undefeated. Um, You know, I'm sure guys like Quincy and Joey Huckster are going to be fired up for this game, as will be people like Jeb Emmerich, Nate Weissong, and uh, Chase Weissong. So, yeah, this will be one of those uh, classic uh, Bedford-Chestnut Ridge meetings, Bedford County uh, bragging rights on the line.
0: Berlin Brothers Valley goes to northern Bedford County. This is a big one in the ICC South because you look at that division – you have three teams that are pegged to be at the top. Brooklyn Brothers Valley, Northern Bedford, Wimber. You could probably throw Northstar into that jumble too right now. Northstar has lost, but Northstar hasn't lost in the division. If they beat
1: Wimber this weekend, uh, it gets real crazy.
0: But, you know, this in essence starts that three-team round robin of the teams we thought would be at the top in this conference going into the season. And this is in Loisburg, a beautiful facility, a very tough place to play.
1: Yeah, Berlin, 4-0, Northern Bedford, 4-0. Kind of, uh, Northern Bedford was expected to be here, but the fact that they are, after what they've been through, might be a little bit of a surprise. I talked to Coach Gary Black uh, for the Friday preview, and his exact quote, uh, he said, it's one of those seasons that you wait for a long time to get to. You have the potential of having the team that everyone's been waiting to see. Then within the first half of the first game, you lose three of your best seniors, for what potentially is a long time. And what happened was that game at Southern It actually only lasted to the half. Yeah. Both teams had so many serious injuries that the coaches got together at halftime, said, hey, we're done. Uh, Northern Bedford lost three key starters, and uh, Coach Black said all of them have kind of come back. One uh, is playing on a torn ACL, which uh, we, we saw that last year with uh, Tanner Shirley, where they said it can't get any worse. They put a brace on it. They played through pain. Um You've lost, uh, you know, they have Adam Johnson was injured, uh, Aaron Det- Detterline, um Reese Dybert. he's been in and out. They, they even had a JV quarterback came up and he broke his foot, according to Coach uh, Gary Black. So, um, you know, they've dealt with a lot of adversity, but guys like Ian Snyder, uh, he said his quarterback, Ian Snyder, is having a dream season, uh, keeping them going. And uh, they're 4-0, and so... They're, they're playing a team that everybody is expected to be right there with them, Berlin Brothers Valley, who uh, has the ultimate leader in Pace Prosser. You've got Aiden Ream and Cody Kimmel, and all those guys are probably raring to go to be down there and uh, play at what everybody's expecting to be, a pretty packed house at Northern Bedford. This is not me judging, but the
0: idea of a 17-, 16-year-old having a torn ACL, being told, okay, yeah, hey, you can play on it, you're not going to damage it anymore. And then going out and playing just blows my mind. I Like, I don't know if I would have that level of commitment. But then again, I never played one down of scholastic football. So.
1: And we talked last year about a similar situation with Tanner Shirley. And um, he was out for several weeks, and Johnny Updike was in, and I believe he was injured last year as well. And then Tanner came back at the end of the year. So, uh, yeah, definitely amazing stuff.
0: Penn's Manor is at Cambria Heights. And you're looking at a heritage conference in which United Valley's at the top. There's a jumble from about two to five. And this can go a long way in determining if it's not United Valley, it might be one of these two teams.
1: Yeah, Penn's Manor, they lose their opener against West And Then I I saw West Shemokin the next week lose to United Valley, and then they dropped their third game. So they were kind of uh, stumbling a little bit. And they came back and beat Cornwall Township pretty handily. So what I'm saying is, you know, Pennsylvania loses to West Shimokin, but then they come back with three straight wins over Homer Center, Cornwall Township, and Cornwall Valley. Now Township and Valley are both uh, struggling, uh, you know, winless teams. So uh, Pensamana is still playing well. Then Cambria Heights had a two-game winning streak snap last week. River Valley won 20-14. So, uh, Cambria Heights, Stephen Nealon, uh, has been producing pretty much on the ground and in the receiving department. So, um, uh, you know, they, they had a nice little stretch going, and then River Valley, uh, who has been playing pretty well, ended that last week.
0: There's a trophy on the line in Evansburg, Penn Cambria is going to go to Central Cambria, it's the goalpost trophy. And you've got neighboring teams, you've got two teams right now that are each three and one this is probably one of the bigger games for Central Cambria
1: in years. Without a doubt. And uh, I've, I've been at a few goalpost trophy games, and I've had the uh, good fortune to be in the press box where they sat that trophy right next to me a couple of times. And you get to look at it, and, uh, you know, you can see it's like something that means something. It's, uh, it's not one of those shiny crystal or, uh, you know, shiny trophies that – Built like a goalpost. Looks like it's had some wear and tear over the years. But, boy, they fight for that trophy. I've been at games. uh, uh, Penn-Cambria the one year when they were down and they were supposed to lose the game. And Central Cambria had them on the ropes. And I I was sitting next to an assistant coach, Central Cambria. And uh, it might have been – I don't know if it was Garrett Harold yet. He would have been younger because it was two or three years ago. But I could hear the coach yelling, quarterback, quarterback, watch the quarterback, watch the quarterback, watch the quarterback, and he rolled out and he hit somebody in the end zone. It was either for a winning two-point conversion or a winning touchdown. Either way, it was, uh, you know, I'm relying on memory here, but it was just a wild experience. And talking to Coach Feedless on the field after he said, hey, nobody gave us a chance. We, we took it. And I've been at some games where Central Cambria won. I've been at games where the field goals won. it. Uh, I mean, it's a great tradition with uh, t- two border rivalries. And, and like you said, Central Cambria may be a surprising 3-1, and one, but they've taken care of business the last couple weeks, and uh, Penn Cambria lost that game at Richland by five points, tough place to play, and uh, you know they felt that they could have won that game just as easily as losing it, and they've reeled off three straight wins since then.
0: Now, as somebody who follows the SICKOS committee, a, a group of college football fans who take the lighter side of college football, uh, the fascination with the weight of rivalry trophies is something that comes up during the season. so I gotta
1: ask how much did the gold post trophy weigh? I'll tell you what I didn't get a chance to pick it up, but it looked like it was uh, it was well built it was like uh it looked like it was built out of um you know it was wood and and it was an h it was the Gold post like the old days mm-hmm. with the h and it was white and it had script painted on it and then at the bottom, I guess uh, the base they had you know I, I don't know if every year they change who wins it or if they just Pass it around, but it was a cool, cool trophy. In fact, I have pictures of it. I had it on Twitter and things. The one year when I sat right next to it, I, I, I it was at Crescent that, that year when I took the picture. It was right next to it. And I remember, you know, I, I have a good memory, but not a total memory of what happened. But I remember there was something with a field goal. Somebody had a really good field goal kicker that year. And um, I think that led to the win, either a made field goal or a blocked field goal. So now you got me. I'm going to go back, flashback. I'm going to be looking this game up. <laughs>
0: All right, uh, let's uh, flash back just a little bit, but just to see who's on top of the area heap in the stats categories as we look back to week four and look ahead to week five.
1: Right, and uh, in the rushing department, Luke Hostetler still leads. Uh, He had, at the time of his injury, he had uh, 10 carries for 77 yards in that game and two touchdowns, so that took him up to uh, 844 rushing yards, which still tops the area by quite a bit because um, the stats provided to me by coaches, Caden McCauley is second from United Valley at 480. Jack Shreddy Shreddy of uh, Northern Cambria is 450, is in third. Jeb Jeb Emmerich of Chestnut Ridge at 447, is fourth. And then Isaac Walensky of Portage is fifth at 436, followed closely by uh, Grady Snyder of Central Cambria at 415. So all those guys are 400 or better. Then in the receiving yards – Chase Wisong, as we said, Chestnut Ridge, 20 catches, 359 yards. Quincy Swaym at Bedford, 17 for 339. And Penn Cambria's Carter McDermott, 16 for 311. Now, right there in fourth, and he was near the top before last week, is Ty Dama, Northern Cambria, 18 catches for 245 yards. But I was uh, texting with Coach Sam Schutte. I read the article last week and I saw that um, Ethan Donatelli, who has over 500 passing yards for Northern Cambria and was among the leaders suffered an injury in week three, and Ty Dumb went from receiver to quarterback last week. So that's why Ty Dumb has fallen off the pace a little bit on receiving yards. But now he's the quarterback, and they picked up a, a nice win last week. Uh, passing yards, Richland freshman Grayson Mela, uh, 791 passing yards for se- with seven touchdowns. Nate Wisong, 684, six touchdowns. And Pace Prosser, 719. Well, I read those out of order. 719 for 11. Um, touchdowns passing. And then Connor Yoder at North Star, 663 with eight touchdowns. Brady Jones, Penn Cambridge, 605 with nine. Uh, kick scoring, we got the uh, Old Faithfuls. Connor Montgomery Berlin, he has 31 kicking points with 19 PATs and four of four on field goals. And then Bryson Costa of Wimber, 30 points, 24 PATs, and two of three on field goals. And then uh, right behind them, Andrew Dillon of Penn Cambria has 20 kicking points. Tackles, we'll run through these quickly. Quincy Swain, Bedford, 54. Joey Huxta, Bedford, 49. Ian Brenneman, Myersdale, 48. Jack Schreedy of Northern Cambria, 47. Corey Marcelco, four steals, 46. And Cody Kimmel, last year's Defense Player of the Year at Berlin, he has 44. And then as far as sacks, we have Bray Nickus, Chestnut Ridge, still has four. And uh, we have three players with three-and-a-half sacks, Nanico Heil of Pencambria, Derek Height of Pencambria, and Eddie Richards of Wimber. I believe Heil and Height uh, they might have had a few sacks last week because they weren't at 3.5 last week, if I can remember correctly. Interceptions, Malachi Carr of Myersdale, four. He's had them, I think, every week he's had at least one. You know, that would make sense. He has four. And then Pace Prosser has four. Um, And then we have several guys with three. All
0: right Now, uh, a feature that Mike has uh, been working on during the season is the Friday flashback. And there was one I was able to get a good look at it uh, before we record. We record on Wednesdays. So this publishes in Friday's edition of the Tribune Democrat. But the one that jumped out to me was your tidbit from 50 years ago. Right an aerial circus, as it was described. I'll let you uh, handle this, and I've got some questions.
1: Sure, yes, uh, I'm starting to have a lot of fun with this feature. Uh, uh, I have all the tabs for 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and 30 years ago. I used microfilm for 40 years ago and 50 years ago. I've had some fun with the microfilm in 1983 and 73, and you find, in addition to stuff you actually use in the paper, you find all kinds of goofy ads, or uh, in 73, they were, they, were, they were leveled off the ground for the Richland Mall and had an aerial photo. And that same year I found uh, on October fifth, 1973, which was week five that year, uh, they said it. there was an aerial circus. Uh, it said North Star quarterback Fred Skurl engaged in an aerial circus while throwing touchdown passes of 50, 23, 48, and 40 yards to halfback Doug Thompson in North Star's 39-20 win at Northern Cambria. It said Bill Zierfoss caught an 18-yard TD pass, and Jack Boyer had a one-yard scoring run for coach John Pat Turlingo's Cougars. Northern Cambria fullback Dave Pederso had two TD runs, and Bernie Venslovsky added another scoring run for the Colts. So that was 50 years ago.
0: And watching random high school football video from the 70s, from the early 80s and everything like that, My question is, okay, you've got all of these yards in those four touchdown passes to the one receiver and an 18-yard TD pass to another. How
1: far did the ball travel in the air? Does not say that, but I I see your point. It could be like the old five-yard dink pass and a guy runs it 45 more for the 50-yard TD, but I do not know. Maybe uh, Fred Skrull aired it out. Maybe it was just short dumps. I don't know. I, I mean, when four of those TD passes
0: are going to the halfback, I'm just picturing either just like, quick bubble screens or those quick halfback slants to just get to the middle of the defense yeah. and you get in the middle of the zone and then you make stuff happen.
1: And uh, it's, I know Northstar, uh, some of those teams in the seventies struggle because I remember at Conomal Valley, Conomal Valley was on that losing streak and every year Northstar and Conomal Valley opened with each other. And that was every, te- both teams looked at it like, here's our chance to get a win, you know? So, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I'd, I'd have to double-check what their record was in 73 and what Northern Canberra's record was because in the 70s, Northern Canberra dominated, especially at the end of the 70s. I mean, they beat Jeff Hostetler's Cornwall Township team, which I don't think lost again that year.
0: I almost want to know what formation and what scheme Northstar was running because this smells a lot like the wrong <laughs> issue We're,
1: we're have to talk to Stacy Schmidt and see if he can put us in contact with somebody from 50 years ago or if any of these guys – if the look sometimes are on the coaching staff,
0: <laughs> it smells a lot like the run and shoot before the run and shoot was even established by Bonnie Kiffin uh, or Miles Davis, I should say. And my goodness, that that is wild. Um, so I got a question for you. We we are four weeks into the season. Um, by this time, Saturday Sunday, we will have wrapped up Week Five. Is it too early to talk about the playoffs?
1: Uh, It's never too early to talk about the playoffs, but it probably is uh, not as important to talk about them this week yet. I usually, uh, when I'm writing the Friday preview, I usually wait till like uh, week seven or eight and and then start delving into it pretty heavy every week. Unless something really crazy happens that, you know, there's a huge upset and it shakes up the whole scene. But yeah.
0: Because my argument is with everything going to six classes now, everything has constricted in terms of number of teams in each classification. I mean, I can, like, before we went to the six classes in the PIAA, there were, like, 20 to 24 teams in Class A in District 6. You know, now you're looking at a scenario where you've got, I'm just doing the math here, like, you've got 14 teams. If eight are making the postseason out of this, you're in a spot where, if you handle your business and there's just enough happening below you, you can start four and zero and pretty much already punch your ticket to the postseason. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go skittering off the rails and go four and six, you're not going to be in the catbird seat like Juniata Valley is right now in Class A in District Six. But it's one of those things where if you're a coach and you're a player. If you know that, say, by week five or week six, while you haven't mathematically clinched, it's going to take an awful lot to knock you down from playoff contention and a playoff spot. Like, how how do you maintain the focus on the task ahead while also making sure that you're going to be at your best, playing your best come week 11, come week 12, when the postseason
1: is rolling? It's, yeah, it's always a, a balancing act because y- you want to win that conference, too. But at the same time, if you've clinched fairly early, you don't want to risk injury. And then the classic one was that Appalachian Bowl, uh, which no longer will be held whenever the Heritage would play the West Pack, And the uh, and Ligonier had those four dominating teams. They won, I think it was the first four of them. And then the uh, there was a year um, – I think maybe Wimber. But anyway, it was.
0: In the six years, it was Ligonier Valley winning for, for Wimber and then Berlin Brothers Valley.
1: Berlin, yes. So, but I remember those games, especially when Wimber was so dominant. I mean, when they played Shade the one year, I mean, uh, Ligonier, they played Shade at Wimber. And uh, I remember Don Fife, and that was a year Shade did really well. They, they won the district and they went uh, state uh, playoffs. But they said for that Appalachian Bowl, it's like our goal is to get out of here healthy. I mean, and it wasn't like they were saying is going to play dirty. They were just that much bigger, stronger, faster, and better. And, and you got guys on that shade team like uh, Dawson Snyder's playing, you know, subdivision, Division One football right now and doing well. You had, uh, you know, Fife's son, uh, Brady, the, the quarterback, was unreal. So, like, there were some really good athletes on the team, but they were still, like, you know, worried about how you'd come out of that game. So, yeah, I definitely see what you're saying.
0: Because you're going to run into it, especially now that you're, you don't know who your week 10 opponent is if you're in the Laurel Highlands athletic conference. So you could be a team that had a playoff spot sewn up two, three weeks ago, and you're playing a team from either side, East or West that is battling for its playoff life. It needs that win against you to get into the postseason, and it might need a win and a lot of help. And, it, these are the these are the situations where I think, especially the coaching staffs, you see their creativity and keeping kids motivated or saying, hey, like, this ain't it. This is not where we've got bigger fish to fry. But you're not saying that this week 10 game is not important. You're not saying this week nine game isn't important, but hey, like we've got a bigger picture here. We think we can do some things. Let's make sure that we can do those things.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, as you said, the veteran guys have been around. They seem to have that, you know, ability to to do that, and the younger guys uh, learn on on the run as as it's going on. And as you said, like there's fewer teams in Class A, and now with uh, there was a rule rule change in the PIAA last week, uh, where the formula for for how you determine how many people are in the the schools enrollment is going to change uh, and, and everybody's thinking it might affect, it's definitely going to affect class A and maybe double A teams way more so than the larger schools because the way the formula changed, it used to be uh, like each charter school or uh, vote or cyber school or whatever, yes. those, everybody that was in your school district that went to one of those, but not your school counted as like a half person. And now that the PIAA said it's going to change, uh, that everybody's going to count one-to-one. One. You, you know, how many, if you have 30 kids going to cyber school, it's going to increase your enrollment to 30 instead of 15. I,
0: I'm interested to see how this is going to affect the schools without borders, mm-hmm. I the, the private schools that are pulling kids in. And this is not, like, you know, anti-private or anything like that. But, like, how, how is this going to affect a school that's pulling in kids from, say, eight or nine different school districts? because they're just smack dab in the middle of this hub of just where, you know, wherever. Like you're, I, I don't want to name names, because I, again, I don't want to make it seem like I am anti-parochial, anti-private schools in any way. But I, I'm interested to see how this will affect and bump them up, if it does at all. Yeah. Or is it like, or is this going to be, the, you know, the, the fabled 1.25 multiplier that we always keep hearing about?
1: things have changed so drastically. I mean, we can remember back when it was just double A and triple A and, uh, you know, it's just, uh,
0: I mean, exactly. I mean, it was just basically you had a head count and this is where you went and you could play up if you wanted to. But yeah. again, like I, cause I looked at the situation with Aliquippa where Aliquippa was almost forced to go up to five A because, because of the success formula. And You know, for a school Aliquippa size to now have to go to 5A and you look at the 5A schools in District 7, you look at the 5A schools in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, I'm not saying Aliquippa would not have been successful on the field, but just in terms of student body sizes, Aliquippa was so out of its depth. So, I mean, but that's a credit to what that program has been for decades pretty much since that program got off the ground and started running. Right. But, you know, that's not everybody. And, you know, a, a school that has, you know, three or four good seasons, is, you know, like because it never really seemed to affect Southern Columbia. Southern Columbia stayed in 2A. But, you know, like you might have a school that goes on a five or six season run, wins a couple district titles, maybe wins a few state playoff games. Now suddenly – that tapers off, and now you're maybe a class or two higher than where you should be, and just getting your ears kicked in.
1: I remember that happening, totally different apples and oranges. But when I first started working at the Trib, uh, late 80s, early 90s, Westmont Hilltop had a really good uh, hockey program. Yes. And they at that time, it wasn't the PIHL. I think it was uh, WPIHL at the time. Yes. And they had a formula, and it was—it always drove me nuts because they ba- like it was, I guess, a success formula. It was based on the year before. But as I said, most of the times in hockey especially, the reason why you're good is because you have a real good senior class. So then you get bumped from single A to double A, or double A in Westmont's case, double A to triple A a lot in those years after everybody graduated that made you good, and now you're playing up a class. Of so I just think it just kind of drove me nuts uh, with, uh, you know, Art McQuillan's team. Still did pretty well back then, but uh, – a lot of times I think, boy, what if they would have been in A or double A? <laughs> and and it's, it's confusing to
0: me to see the PIHLA. We're kind of skittering off the tracks here. We'll, we'll bring it back in a minute. Where, like, you look at Class A, and you'll see these schools that you know are 4, 5, 6A in, in PIHLA schools. Yeah. But either because of just recent success or non-success or just because the size of the team. Like, I, I don't know how the P.I.H.L. Yeah. determines that, you know, Norwin is in Class A. You know, I, I think Norwin yeah. might be up into Class 2A now, but like for the longest time, these schools like Norwin, Greensburg, Salem will be leading in Class A. But I'm sure somebody can, you know, get into my inbox and, you know, educate me on the formula. That'd be super. As curtis at tribdem.com if you're so inclined for mike mastovich at masty81 on twitter or x and mike masty on instagram i am sean curtis at sean curtis 430 on twitter and x or threads or blue sky or instagram we are signing off for this edition of the td club and as always congratulations you have made it to the end